This is Bamsey's Humanity First Podcast. I am Chris Ryan along with uh, Peter Evers. And last week, Bamsey had a really well-attended, informative listening session on the COVID vaccine, which included a couple of individuals who have gotten their second shot. And to me, hearing why they did it and um, some of the side effects that are real uh, with the, the second vaccine, to me, was was pretty significant. Um, you know, Christiana, who's been on the show in the past, spoke uh, to the group um, and some other individuals as well. What were your takeaways from uh, the listening session, and uh, what's the uh, the environment right now that you sense around the office about getting uh, the the vaccine at Bamsey? Well, I had a lot of takeaways, Chris. I, I did think um, those numbers around uh, our person served, uh, who we've been able to get vac- vaccinated, you know, it's not far off 100% of the people in our residential programs who are at the most risk probably in the state that we've been able to get vac- uh, vaccinated. And the guardians, for the most part, with a couple of exceptions, have absolutely gone along with that. I think I think that's a number of things. I think that's the education campaign that we've been involved with, not just at Bamsey, but in general. I think the state's done a pretty good job in pushing out information about risk. You're always going to have a certain number of people who aren't able to take the vaccine. We heard about that, too, people with compromised immune systems. Um, and that we had somebody who was uh, pregnant who spoke about that, about not wanting to take that risk, totally understand. Um, but generally speaking, we, I think we had about 58, 60 people yep. um, on the call. And what I really liked is we had um, a chief officer for security for the state court system, um, Chief Reggie Graham, uh, talking about his experience of going through that. So there was somebody, a person of color in a, uh, in a high position talking about, look, I made a judgment that this was the right thing to do. And we addressed that issue of, you know, uh, people of color, black and brown people having less uh, faith in the medical system and and put it out there and talked about it. But got to a place, I think, where people said, look, I'm weighing these things up. And if, you know, only 7% of the black and brown community are getting vaccinated and those folks are dying at the highest level we really need to take this into our hands and i think that was a good conversation i think just a plug for christiana who was wonderful but also ronda campbell who talked about her mom and her daughter who was an immunologist um or virologist talking about you know look this is the right thing to do Um, i thought it was a great session yeah it was a broad cross-section of individuals who had um different reasons and rationales for wanting to get the vaccine and also some real reasons why they were considering perhaps not getting it and hearing their real experiences and stories i thought was um was really significant and you know the overriding factor of doing it kind of for a greater good and whether it's our person serve population and uh making sure that they're safe um and you know basically just as a society trying to get back to a place where we are experiencing the things that we want to experience in living a uh, a complete and you know total life and um there's a lot of positive news around the vaccination and about how quickly we could get vaccinated as a country and when we can sort of get back to that new normal but each person kind of has to do their part in order for that to to come to uh to fruition and you know i thought hearing the the fact that yeah you're you're going to perhaps not feel well particularly after the second shot um, but it's worth it because of um, the fact that you're going to be able to see 
your parents and be around your parents, or you're going to get to um, go on that trip that you've wanted to to go on. And you know, to have that opportunity right in front of us, um, and to have it, you know, within the organization on campus um, and you know at CVS, I thought that those messages were pretty strong. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think we're doing everything we can. And at the end of the day, like I, like I said, and, and we reiterated, we're not making people get this vaccination, but we're doing a level best to make people understand why they should. I'm going to turn it back over to Peter, who's going to introduce our guest here on the podcast this week. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Humanity First. We have a very special guest today. Um, and in the in the interest of continuity, um, you for those of you who had listened to the podcast last week, we had a conversation with Teresa Belson, who is our VP for our um, adult services and residential and ACCS services. And we talked about stigma a lot. And we talked about um, how we're fighting that at BAMSI, but also had a general conversation about, um, about some of these diseases of despair, as I call them, uh, and how over time they've been met with some, um, with a lot of stigma. Um, and the conversation that we were having at the time was, um, you know, more about how do we, how do we make sure that people recognize these as diseases, as these chronic diseases that can be uh, treated and have more positive outcomes than many other of the uh, chronic diseases that we deal with, like diabetes. So. Uh, welcome uh, to our director of operations on the adult side, Jess Almeida. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So maybe we should start by um, just talking a little bit about your um, about the programs that you oversee, because I think as you describe those programs, we'll understand that here we have somebody who's rather an expert in talking about sort of fighting against some of these societal uh, conventional wisdoms and how we can change them. Okay, so I oversee um, BAMSI's Clubhouse program, which is a DMH funded program for people living with mental illness, mm -hmm. along with the peer recovery learning community, which I know you, you talked about on the first half of this with Teresa, um, but it's all peer run, peer led um, with individuals who have lived experience with mental illness or substance use. Um, I oversee the community partner programs. I think you've had a previous podcast about that as well. Yeah. Um, uh, some elderly services like Dorn Day Senior Center um, and the collaboration with the Brockton Housing Authority with the service coordinators. And then I also oversee the um, HIV programming, which we have um, a few programs in that, which is one with um, where we work with people who are living with HIV AIDS, doing medical case management, making sure they're connected to medical care and have medications and whatever other needs they have. Um, then we also have the COPE Center, which works with people who are actively um, in their, active in their addiction. Um, we have a syringe service program, um, help folks get into treatment if that's where they're at. Um, and then we also have a um, transgender program where it's a small, it's only one staff, but um, they are able to help individuals kind of navigate through whatever healthcare they may need. Um, and the HIV program is really close to my heart. That's where I started at BAMSI as an intern um, 26 years ago, almost 26 years. So I think that's, you know, I had going into that, I had no knowledge about HIV. I was very green and learned a lot very quickly about stigma. Um, working in that program. 
I want to ask you a little bit about the, the crossover between the programs. Now, obviously, there's a tremendous diversity of these programs that I would not expect there to be tremendous crossover between the HIV, the COPE, and, and mental health. But is there crossover, particularly on the, the mental health and, and COPE side? And um, how frequently do you see the crossover between the programs that we offer? So for those programs, I mean, the COPE Center, we're seeing a, um, a lot of folks with untreated mental illness. Um, sometimes they, they make it into the other programs. I mean, there's a lot of crossover between COPE and the case management program because we also do HIV testing at COPE. So if someone tests positive, we're able to get them the medical case management. Um, there's starting to be a little bit possibility of some crossover with the BHCP program in the COPE Center. We have somebody we're trying to get into that who could use some more services. Um, actually, same on the HIV program. So I think there will be some crossover for that. Um, oh, and one program I forgot, we also, I also oversee the psychiatric day treatment program too. So, I mean, I think that was one of the reasons why I kind of got all those programs together because of the possibility of, of some crossover. Um, you know, we've tried to do some HIV education in some of those programs. Um, and I know adult day treatment, we've done some, uh, staff has gone out and done some um, kind of HIV 101 um, overdose prevention training. We've actually um, done a lot of that through the agency with um, naloxone training for, for staff. So I think almost every program has Narcan or naloxone kit. Um, so yeah, I guess that's a great question. There is, there is a lot of crossover in many different ways. Yeah, I mean, it, it's such a good um, sort of launch pad into the future of our services in a way, Jess. And you, you know, your description of your programs, it's interesting. It covers a very, very broad waterfront of the human condition. Um, <clears throat> and it also, interestingly enough, uh, identifies uh, individuals who struggle with societal stigma probably more than any other groups. You know, I can think of a couple that got left out there. <laughs> but, um, but it is no coincidence. Uh, and I don't even know if it was if this was done purposefully. It is no coincidence that you're dealing with people who are at the margins oft, often, who are struggling with disease, <clears throat> struggling with addiction, and are struggling with the, the disease of mental illness. And it does make you think um, about this notion of co-occurring disorders. And I remember, you know, certainly when I did a lot of my initial learning about COD, about co-occurring disorders, you know, all the teaching said, forget about these things happening um, individually. People struggle with many, it's like peeling an onion. You know, you find somebody with HIV, the likelihood it is they're going to have some issues of depression and they may well have had a history uh, of addiction. And this isn't about labeling. This is actually about seeing the individual for themselves and so that we can see that we're treating the individual, not the mm -hmm. disease. Um, and that uh, and Chris's question is so important to the to the future of our work, which is integration and, yeah. and, and, and that idea of making sure that, you know, we're not treating something and sort of polishing that up and having that shiny and new and recovered. And yet we have somebody with metabolic disorder that is going to kill them 25 years before, you know, their uh, sort of natural age process. Um, and so within that, though, 
become comes the stigma and and i was just you know one of the things that i've been reading about recently is stigma within stigma as well that you are still going to encounter some stigma from the groups that you work with who are encountering stigma this sort of notion of the almost the stepladder of stigma you know yeah. where just wondering if you sort of come across that and how you address that with people who don't want to admit to or, or work with their mental illness who are who are presenting with say HIV AIDS. Yeah, I think people have their priorities of of what is causing them the most pain at, at that moment. Um, you know, like I mentioned, we have a lot of individuals that go to cope who have untreated mental illness, but that that's not their priority. Their priority is is not feeling sick, <laughs> you know, getting what they need. And we try to keep them safe in order to, you know, to do what they need to do at that time or get them help. Um, I'd imagine I really, it's reversed at some times as well, where if an individual is suffering from mental illness and they're using um, you know, drugs or alcohol in order to deal with that, they want to address the mental illness. And then as a result of that, perhaps address the the other side, but your point is, I think, extremely uh, potent, and that is whatever the most serious aspect is that it's affecting us. Like, you're not going to know if you have a headache if your um, your foot has been cut off, right? I mean, yeah. you're, you're, it is a certain whatever is the most pressing need is whatever the person wants to to address, and at times that pressing need can be so overbearing that you can't address or even think about any of the other things that are affecting you. Yeah, and I know that the staff struggle with that because they can see the person kind of, they can see where this is going, but but they can't convince, you know, they can't make the person do what they're not ready to do. Um, I know we've seen that a lot in the, at the HIV case management program, you know, somebody trying to get somebody on medications and, but they're worried about paying their rent and getting food and that's just not their priority. And And that's hard. It's hard for the staff to, you know, to learn that. But yeah, we, we have to work with where, where people are at really in every single one of those programs. Yeah. And, and, you know, when you think, I think about the housing first model, which isn't something we directly work with, but, you know, when you look at how housing first grew up, it was that we were placing um, that we were telling people that they had to get sober before they got housing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We were telling them that they had to, you know, uh, deal with their mental illness before they got housing. Uh, and that goes right to these to the Maslow's thing, doesn't it? You know, you you don't worry about having your kids in school when you don't have a roof over their head. Right. Um, and that's what Housing First is all about, isn't it? That, that you, you know, you place, you secure, you put a roof over their head, you stabilize, and then you offer treatment. And you offer, you don't mandate treatment. You know, I have some right. mixed opinions about that because I think you can also miss opportunities by not expecting. And certainly transformational work that we do in the recovery field, both in mental health and behavioral health, is there are expectations that we have of the individuals in their, in their struggle, in their crisis, that they can recover. And we, we must push those people, we must give those people those, those um, opportunities. But you're so right, you know, you start where people are and everybody's journey in recovery is different, right? Mm-hmm. And everybody's course of treatment and recovery is different as well. I want yeah. to talk a little bit about... And I know oh, go if ahead. I... Go ahead. You go ahead, Jess. I was just going to say, when in listening to your conversation with Teresa, and she talked a lot about the peers, and, uh, and we have some peers in the HIV program, as well as we've hired staff over the years at COPE with lived experience. Um, we didn't 
necessarily advertise it that way, but those were some of the best staff that we had. Um, and then in the HIV program, when we added peers, probably about 10 years ago, when DPH really was pushing us to add peers, that made a huge difference for the people we worked with. Um, and those peers are still with us too at the HIV program. Their roles has changed a little bit due to DPH funding, but we knew the importance of having peers on the staff who can work with people who are living with HIV and really reach them in a different way than the other staff could. We were able to find a lot of folks who are out of care um, and get them back into care because of the peers. So I just wanted to reiterate that that is such an important um, part of, of all the services we provide, I think, at BMZ. Yeah, to me, the the commonality and also, in some circumstances, accountability that peer support provides is so, so significant, where there's an understanding of the circumstance that goes both ways, where the, the peer understands what the individual that needs the support is needing, and um, even if that person may not understand, and also you feel much more comfortable if you are that individual that is seeking support in speaking to somebody that has that commonality of understanding. And if there needs to be accountability at times, um, that person can you know, demand it because they've lived it and um, are living it in a way that others uh, cannot. And, and points of time, you know, in whether it's in substance misuse or in mental health or in other circumstances, accountability is really um, important in a person's uh, journey uh, to and um, and in dealing with uh, efforts and re recovery. I want to talk a little about stigma and how do we as an organization go about addressing you know stigma because very often people feel they cannot be themselves and they cannot um, talk about things in a real sense because of stigma and we talked about this a lot obviously on the podcast last week and you know stigma to me makes individuals feel inferior it, it makes them feel different it makes them feel that they cannot um bring forward their true identity because of how they're going to be judged mm -hmm. and there's so many different psychological factors that lead to that um, that circumstance, and we can't really address that because that's to each person. But as a organization or as people, how do you feel, uh, Jess, that we can address the aspects of, of stigma so that individuals are more comfortable in defining what they want to say, um, who they, what what parts of themselves they want to reveal, but they can do so in a way that is is comfort is comfortable and also kind of what strides have we made in your time uh, at BAMSI over the last 26 years on those topics? Yeah, so that's a that's a difficult question, I think, to answer across all the programs. Um, I think with mental illness it, it is t and with substance use too it is talking talking about it publicly, you know, if somebody is comfortable. Um, I think the more that it's out there in the general public, the more understanding there hopefully will be. And, and I think over the years in mental health and in substance use, um, I think we've, we've come a long way. I think there's still a long way to go. Um, but I think with the, the opiate epidemic, I think um, all those parents that have, have spoken out about losing a child have saved so many lives. Um, and, and, spoke, and, and spoken out and said, it's okay 
you know, this is happening in my family, it's okay to say it's happening in your family too. Um, I think that was really, really important for the opiate epidemic and, and getting attention to that and getting the funding and getting the services that were needed. Um, I think it, it's a little more tricky with the HIV program as well as the transgender program because I, I think there's still a lot of, again, I think we've come a long way with the HIV program, especially back when I started in the you know early middle 90s. It was, you couldn't talk about it at all and people could not, I mean, we had people who were living in the same house with people and, and they wouldn't let them share the same silverware or, you know, or even got kicked out of their home. So it's, it's, you know, you've really got to, I, I feel like I, I have to leave it up to the people who, who are mm -hmm. living with that to make that individual decision for themselves. Um, again, I think we've come a long way. It's more of a chronic illness. It's more treatable. So, you know, you see commercial HIV medications and they're not at, at midnight, they're in the middle of the day yeah. um, or in the evening. So I, I do think that it's, you know, it, it's, it is seen as more chronic illness now. And again, I think it probably depends where you live, what, what um, culture you are on, on how the, the disease is looked at too. Um, yeah, I mean, Peter, I just want to hear you talk about this as well, because I think this is an important topic and how stigma at times um, correlates to mental health issues and suicide, um, in, in particular in, um, you know, whether it's the transgender community, um, whether it's in you know, the homosexual community um, and individuals as a whole that feel that, you know, they don't have a place and they can't speak, um, about what they're going through. And, um, that in my view, stigma and the correlation between suicide is, is an important one. And I wanted to hear both of you kind of speak on, on that and, and why this is in some circumstances kind of a, not kind of, it is a life and death type of, of issue. Mm -hmm. And in my view, we need to, to look at it as such. Yeah, I mean, you know, what what strikes me as unbelievable sometimes is take the transgender uh, popular, well, take the whole spectrum, LB, LGBTQ plus pop, uh, population. They have a 10 times higher likelihood of attempted suicide than everybody else in the population. And then you look at that and say, well, what are we doing specifically for that group of folks to, um, to strengthen their... Um, you know, their armory against that. And if we're not doing anything, that doesn't make any sense at all. So that sort of, I think it's a three-pronged attack. It is read the literature, know the data, who are the, the, the at-risk populations, and then design programs with peers, with people who look like them, who can tell that story of recovery that Jess was just talking about, uh, and make sure that we're targeting those groups um, and then what does your workforce look like? Is, does your workforce look like the people you're serving? But how trained is your workforce in being trauma-informed? Because many, many of the, of the situations that we're dealing with with people who are at high risk have a trauma history. You know, I would say 90 plus percent, and maybe, maybe I'm underestimating that, Jess. I don't know. But there's a trauma history. There's a societal trauma as well to many of those folks when Jess was talking about the transgender population and HIV AIDS population. They are traumatized by being in society. It's just the way it is. Um, and so how do you train your staff to be affirming, to be welcoming, 
you know, I used to do orientation where I said, think about a bad serve, um, com, uh, consumer experience that you have and think about a good one, not in healthcare, but just a bad one. And, and let's talk about how you dealt with it. And it's incredible how people will talk about these terrible experiences they have with Comcast. Sorry, anybody. <laughs> uh, because it usually is Comcast or, or, or Verizon uh, or whatever it is. And it's because people haven't treated them like human beings. And it's because people, you know, you have to press three, four, five, six different numbers together. You've got to personalize your interactions more in this work than any other work. Because the impression you make on the end of a phone in your first in your first meeting with somebody is so important because most of the time those people have been rejected. Most of those time, the times those people have felt judged and have felt as if they're not being heard. And, 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 and if we're doing that as the helping organization, we lose the opportunity to make an, uh, an, an impression on people's lives. And so it is, it's about workforce. It's about a philosophy of inclusion and a philosophy of, of care and loving. I mean, let's say it just, you know, be affirming to people and give them a place where they don't feel as if they're outside of the outside of the norm create those affinity groups and that's what we've done here and there's a lot of work to do this will never end this work it will never end there will always be prejudice as we've seen over you know the last few years mm-hmm. uh, but you know jess is doing a remarkable job of creating an environment where people can feel included uh, and feel as if they're on a path to recovery and Jess, what are some of the ways that we are doing that? Because in my view, there's nothing worse than a person you know, feeling they don't have a place in society because of who they are, because of who they are as an individual. How do we um, go about uh, that affirmation and affinity? Yeah, I, I think I really echo what Peter said. I mean, I, I can, I think in what, when you were talking that what came to mind is the COPE Center and, and most of the folks who go there have been banned from the shelter or banned from their doctor's office. Like they have nowhere else to go, but they always know they can go to cope and be treated with, you know, no type of judgment whatsoever, no matter what is happening with them. Um, And I think that's, that's, you know, a really unique um, program. And I, I think it's, you know, it's such great work that the staff do there and, and really just being open to anybody who comes in the door, no matter you know what they're going through. Well, Jess, we really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for joining us here on the podcast, and uh, we look forward to uh, chatting again soon. Great. Thank you for having me. That is Jess Almeida, Director of Operations here at BAMSI, talking about uh, some of the really vital programs that we have uh, and uh, also addressing uh, stigma a little bit and how it exists in the uh, the areas that she works. I am Chris Ryan for Peter Evers. This has been Bamsey's Humanity First podcast. Mm-hmm.